Hi, it's Chris Flanagan. Welcome to the Pediatric Emergencies Podcast. Um, we've got a non-airway topic for you today, which um, for those of you who aren't particularly airway orientated, will be pleased to hear. Um, I've spent most of the last year writing the Pediatric Emergencies Intubation Course Manual um, to go with our Pediatric Emergencies course. Um, and we're making the chapters available as they're written online on Pediatric Emergencies. Com. Um, but I want to let you know that we've just recently released the, the whole manual as an iBook. So if you head over to the iBook store and type in Pediatric Emergencies, you'll find the course manual. Um, there's lots of videos of intubations in it, lots of nice coloured pictures, and the basics of everything explained really well. So feel free to download that. It's quite a big file. It's almost two gigabytes, but that's because there's so much audiovisual content in it um, and if you enjoy that please feel free to leave us a review and some feedback um, so like I said I spent most of the last year on airway related topics for that course manual um, what, am I, what have I planned for 2018 um, I'm hoping to get back to the waiting for the paediatric retrieval team section and get a couple of talks for that I have a few things in mind that I want to do um, but before I get to that, um, I want to talk about paediatric central line insertion today. And part of the reason for that is um, we get new registrars come into the unit every six months and I have to teach the same things again and again. Um, I've already made uh, podcasts and sections on the website on how to set up the ventilator, um, how to interpret CFAM. Um, and other things that they're going to have to do. Um, so I just wanted to make a talk on paediatric central line insertion. It's aimed at the basics for people who haven't inserted central lines before. Um, although if you only insert central lines in adults, you will find some key pearls on how to have a really high success rate in children because there is a few differences that you're going to have to modify your technique slightly to have a good success rate in children. Okay, so let's get started. The first thing is, does my child actually need a central line? And importantly, central lines aren't without complications. There's complications from inserting the line. Um, the child has to be positioned in a certain way. Um, if they're difficult to ventilate, they may not enjoy that and they may clinically deteriorate. There's a risk of the tube becoming dislodged during that. And importantly, you're taking your eye off the ball for a significant period of time while you try and insert this central line. So it mightn't be the right thing to do. Um, also, insertions associated with bleeding, particularly if the child's coagulopathic or thrombocytopenic, and there's risk of causing a pneumothorax. There's also long-term risks with the line, uh, infection probably being the most common. Um, there's risk of thrombosis in the vessel that you've inserted the line in. And obviously if the child needs further lines and you've thrombosed the vessels, um, vascular access in the future may actually be impossible. Um, and as well, although you may insert the line, it might be in a good location, there is a risk of the line migrating through the vessel wall um, causing life-threatening complications. So importantly, don't insert a central line unless you really need one. And not every child who comes to the intensive care does need a central line. So the first thing to ask yourself is, can I manage with peripheral access? And if you can get two peripheral lines into your patient 
and you think they're only going to be on the ventilator for a short period of time, um, you're not going to have to give them anything that needs a central line, for example, visoactive drugs or a concentrated potassium infusion, and you shouldn't have any difficulty getting another peripheral line in if your cannula goes, then your child probably doesn't need a central line at the moment. If things change, you can always put one in at a later stage, but there's no need to put one in on admission given the complications. Say you, you think your child is going to be on the ventilator you know, three, four, five days, and actually your peripheral access is going to be slightly tricky. Um, there's a few good veins now, but they're probably going to get used up. Your alternative is to put in a midline. So a midline is just a slightly longer cannula. Um, we have later flex lines that are 22 gauge and they come in 6 to 8 centimetres, um, the shorter lengths. Um, so you can put these in, in the anticubital fossa, um, the long saphenous vein in the leg. And the tip of the line isn't in a central position, but it's in a bigger vessel. You can stitch the line in and these lines generally will last at least a week without um, having the same issues that cannulas have, becoming kinked, dislodged, or tissuing. Um, so, perfect lines if you just want secure peripheral access. And I would recommend that you think about inserting one of these rather than a peripheral cannula in a child in the unit, um, particularly if they're going to be there for more than a couple of days. Um, rather than going through the cycle of one cannula going, putting another one in, then putting another one in, and before you know it, all the peripheral veins are used up and the child needs a central line just because of difficult access. While there's a good vein there at the start, uh, if you put a midline into it, it's likely to last their child a course. So think about it. Um, say you've got a child who is relatively stable but just needs secure access for maybe a, a long-term course of antibiotics. Um, this is where the PEC line comes in. Um, we have two different lines in the unit. Um, we tend to use the later flex lines, um, and they do come in longer lengths. I mentioned we use the 6th and 8 centimetre lines for midlines. Um, there is also 15 and 20 centimetre lines, which can be fed up centrally as a PEC line. And there's also standard 3 and 4 French Cook PEC lines, which come in single and double lumen. So they're great for the children that need more secure access and for slightly longer and also give you the ability to administer central drugs. So the later flex lines are generally faster and easier to insert. They don't require any dilatation and can be left in for up to 28 days. Um, so I would tend to use those if I think um, the lines only needed for a couple of weeks. Um, generally if it's going to be longer than that and certainly longer than a month um, it's probably worth putting in one of the um, proper PEC lines. Um, the reason for that is they're, they're more likely to last a bit longer as the lumen's a bit thicker they're less likely to clot off as well. And then we come on to your standard central lines. Um, these generally have three lumens in children. We do have some two lumen lines and for older children, you can use the adult lines, which have four or five lumens at times. Um, so these are for children who are sick, who are going to need multiple medications, many of which can only be given centrally, for example, concentrated potassium or vasoactive drugs. 
and these, these lines are designed for short-term use, so they're generally only left in for about 10 to 14 days. And it's these lines that I'm going to focus on for the rest of this talk. Um, before I do, though, it's important to mention that um, in patients who are going to need more long-term access, um, replacing one central line with another central line might not be the best approach. And actually going to a PIC line or a surgically um, implanted Brobiac line um, might be a better option. Although if you've got a patient who needs multiple lumen access, you may be stuck with your um, standard triple lumen central lines, at least initially. Okay, so we've agreed that your patient needs uh, a central line inserted and with a wide variety of lines you can choose from. Um, picking which line you're going you're gonna to use depends on the length of the line, the diameter of the line and the number of lumens that you need. Um, in children we generally try and put the line all the way into the hilt so we try not to leave some of the line out. Um, the reason for that children generally tend to move about, they'll pull on their lines and if you've left some of the line out, um, the line's going to slide in and out, uh, increasing the risk of infection and there's a risk of the line becoming dislodged. So it's generally advisable to size your line so that you can put it all the way into the hilt. Obviously in children, particularly small babies, the um, size of the vessel is much smaller than it is in adults. And if you put a particularly large line in that blocks up most of the lumen, your chances of a thrombus forming around the line um, are incredibly high. So in general, you should use the smallest lumen of central line that you can get away with. And then when it comes to lumens, um, less of a problem in children because most of our lines only come um, with generally three lumens, but there is a couple of two lumen lines. Um, but you should generally use the fewest number of lumens that you need um, because the risk of infection goes up with the more lumens that you have on the line. Um, practically, what does this mean? Um, I tend to use a 4.5 French 6 centimetre line as my standard for most neonates. Um, I've used this, inserted this line right the way down to 700 grams. Obviously couldn't put the line all the way into the hilt in a baby that size, but the line comes with clips that allow you to secure the line with only part of it in. Um, but for most standard term babies, that line could be inserted all the way in um, in either an internal jugular or femoral approach. Um, if you do have a smaller patient and you only want two lumens, there is also a four French double lumen central line that you could use. Um, as the patients get a little bit older, um, we do have the 4.5 French um, also in an eight centimeter line, if you want a slightly longer length. Um, and then for the older patients, we have bigger seven French lines, um, which come in 12 and 15 centimeter lengths. Um, so choosing the right length of line and right diameter line comes with a bit of experience. So ask if you're not sure. Um, in general, um, you're wanting the tip of the line to be at the SVC radiatorial junction. And for femoral lines, you're really only trying to leave the line in one of the iliac veins. You're not trying to feed it up all the way to the heart. Um, so then it comes on to what vessel are you going to insert the central line into. And in children we generally use the femoral and the internal jugular vein um, mainly. Um, subclavian vein is more risky. There's a higher risk of causing pneumothorax and if your child bleeds you might not be able to compress on it. 
So it generally is only used in children where you can't insert a femoral or an internal jugular line. Um, another option is the auxiliary vein um, with ultrasound guidance. Um, you can feed a, a long thin line up from an under the arm into a central location. Um, and I've used this a number of times in children with tricky access. Um, so what's going to influence whether you go for a femoral or an internal jugular line? Um, there's a few things. So your patient's underlying medical condition can influence that. Um, so if you've got a cardiac baby, um, you need to be careful about where you put your central line. If your baby's going to need a septostomy um, at some stage, it's important that you don't insert a femoral line. Because if you wreck the femoral access, the baby might not be able to have the septostomy done. If your baby has a univentricular heart, um, for example, hypoplastic left heart syndrome, um, your baby at some stage is going to need a Fontan procedure done. And if you put a neckline in and cause the SVC to clot up, your baby may not be able to have that operation in the future. So if your baby's going to need a septostomy, put a neckline in. Um, and if your baby is going to have a univentricular heart, go down the Fontan route, make sure you stay clear of the neck vessels. You're better with a femoral line. Another thing to think about, if your baby is going to need a dialysis line, um, potentially, I would try and stay clear of the right internal jugular vein with your central line. Leave it free for the vas cath. So try, try either a left-sided neckline or a femoral line if you can. So you're leaving that right IJ free for the vas cath. If the baby has abdominal pathology um, and you're wanting to measure CVP, um, or be um, assured of de reliable delivery of any medications given, um, you're better with a neckline. If your kid's quite gluopathic and thrombocytopenic, um, obviously the femoral line's a bit safer uh, in those circumstances. Um, another one not everybody thinks about, but important if your child's at risk of arrhythmias, um, for example, a particular cardiac condition, or they've got some electronic disturbances, um, because part of the process of inserting the central line involves advancing a wire uh, and then passing the line over the top of the wire, a femoral line would probably be safer for those patients because your puncture site is further away from the heart and you're less likely to advance that wire inadvertently into the heart and cause an arrhythmia. Um, it's important also you look at previous lines. Um, if your child's had lots of previous lines, the vessels may actually have thrombosed. So it's worth, before you start off, scan all the vessels and pick the best site. Um, although importantly, if your child is going to need a long-term line, like a Broviac line, in the future, you might want to stay out of the best sites and maybe try and put your standard temporary central line into one of the worst sites and leave that good site free for a surgical line in the future. Speed of insertion is also important. Um, if I've got a crashing patient who needs a line now, I'm almost always going for a neckline. It's a bigger target. It's faster to insert um, rather than a femoral line. And finally, the important thing to mention is, do I go for a left-sided or a right-sided line? And the answer is nearly always a right-sided line, unless you're trying to leave the right side free for a future line. And the reason for that is left-sided lines are associated with much more complications than right-sided lines. The, the left-sided um, internal jugular 
um, line has quite a big curve on it uh, over to the anominate vein and then it almost has a right angle bend to go into the SVC whereas the right sided internal jugular line has almost a straight passage down to the distal SVC. So obviously the turns in the left sided line um, mean it's more likely to be malpositioned. And that line as well, that final turn um, over into the SVC is difficult to get the line to always go round. And actually if the line's left um, at that right angle where the anominate joins the SVC, there's risk of that line actually perforating through the, the right lateral wall of the SVC. Um, same in femoral vessels, um, the right-sided line is less likely to go into the lumbar vessels than the left-sided line, although most of the lines we are putting in are short and they're not, you're not trying to get out of the LX. Um, if you are feeding a pick line up, um, again, the right leg would be better than the left leg to avoid that complication. So definitely a right-sided line if you can avoid the left side if possible. So the next thing to consider is ultrasound versus landmark technique. Um, and I think this is pretty clear nowadays. Most of us are learning our lines under ultrasound rather than using the landmark technique. Um, kids are getting more complex. They're having more and more lines. Um, you can't be guaranteed that the, the vein that you're gonna go for isn't gonna be thrombosed that the position of it's not going to be abnormal. Whereas if you put the ultrasound on, you'll be able to see all that before you start. So I don't think you really can advocate for the landmark technique anymore. Um, we have a, an ultrasound in the unit. We have an ultrasound for transport that is portable. So there's no need for the landmark technique, I don't think, anymore. And I would recommend that all lines are done with ultrasound guidance. So what are we doing when we're passing a central line? We're using the Seldinger technique. Um, so what you do is you enter the, the vessel of the, the vein with either a small needle or a cannula. You check that the, it's in the vein by aspiration and then once you're happy with that, pass a small wire down into the vein and take the needle or cannula out. You then dilate the hole in the vein to a bigger hole uh, and then pass a larger diameter line over the wire into the vein and remove the wire. There is a few differences when it comes to inserting central lines in children. Um, and these are for those of you who are maybe more experienced in certain central lines. I've done a few in adults, but I've come to this looking for some tips for doing them in children. Um, and I will cover these in more detail um, during the actual technique um, for inserting the line but the main differences are when you're using your ultrasound um, we tend to use an out-of-plane technique in children rather than the in-plane technique um, there's less room in the child to use the in-plane technique um, everything's narrow and closer together so the out-of-plane tends to work better um, in children as well the cannula is much more useful than a needle um, and again I'll give you all the reasons for that when we're talking through the actual technique. And the final thing I would recommend doing in children is always trying to transfix the vein rather than trying to cannulate it directly. And again, I'm gonna cover the reasons as we go through. So getting on to the actual technique, how do you insert the central line? Um, important to mention, I do have a couple of videos that are gonna be up on pediatricemergencies.com showing this technique. So it's worth having a look at those 
when you're finished. Um, the first thing I'd recommend before you um, go and scrub is position the patient yourself the way you want them for doing the lime. Um, it's important not to leave this to somebody else. Um, I've made this mistake before where I've been in a hurry to get scrubbed and the patient hasn't been positioned properly and then I've missed the lime. Um, so always do this yourself. If your patient's intubated, muscle relax them for inserting the line. The vessels in children are small. They're one or two millimetres and any movement at all can really um, just wreck your chances of getting that line in. So give yourself the best chances to sedate and muscle relax the patient if you can. Um, so how do you position the patient? So for a femoral line, um, you want to place a small row under both hips. And importantly, it's under both hips, not just the hip that you're going for. Um, and what you want is it to be under the hips, so it lifts the hips up so that the legs flop out in external rotation. And what you're looking for is that frog leg position so that your legs will be below the hips and this causes the skin um, just below the inguinal region to become taut. And that's what you're looking for. Um, hips in a frog leg position and the skin in the inguinal ligament um, to become taut. With an internal jugular line, what you want to do is have the patient positioned head down. Head down is important because um, it makes the veins bigger, is the first thing. Um, and it also is important to prevent our embolus as well. You want to have the face to the opposite side that you're going to insert the line. And you want your row this time to be under the shoulders. Importantly, it's not under the neck, as many people think. It's under the shoulders so that the, the neck is extended um, below the shoulders. Um, and importantly, again, the skin on the neck must be taut. It's the tautness of the skin that is a sign that you've positioned the line or positioned the patient in the correct position. And if the skin's not taut, what will happen is you're putting your needle in towards it, the vein is going to be able to move and the soft tissues are going to move. So I can't stress this enough. The skin must be taut before you start. It's also important to make sure your patient is stable in this position. Um, your patient will generally ventilate quite well in the head up position with their neck in the midline. But actually um, putting a roll under the shoulders, positioning them head down. If there's any leak around the tube, it'll be exasperated. They'll be slightly harder to ventilate. Um, so it's important that you make sure your patient's ventilating well and also that they're anaesthetized enough for you to insert the line. And the reason to do all this before you're scrubbed is you can give them extra medication if you need to. You can make any adjustments to the airway before you start scrubbing up. So once you're happy with the position and that your patient's stable, the next thing to do is to scrub. Um, I would then recommend that you prepare your line prior to inserting it. And by that, um, I would put three by taps on the, I'm assuming this is a triple lumen line, um, on the medial and the proximal port of the central line and flush all three lumens through. Um, so on your cook lines, it's the white port is the distal lumen and on the Vigon lines that we have in the unit, it's the green lumen, that's the distal lumen. So obviously you can't put a three-way tap on the distal lumen because that's the one that the wire is going to come out. Um, but you can put them on all the other lumens and have those flush through. 
and I would recommend that you still flush the distal lumen through um, because it provides a bit of lubrication for the wire. Um, so then um, once you've got your line ready um, you're ready to start with the line insertion. So obviously clean the patient and put drapes on. Um, ensure you've used enough drapes to cover um, a big enough sterile field. Um, remembering that you're going to bring the ultrasound um, obviously covered um, with a probe cover into the field. So when we come on to ultrasound, like I said, um, all the lines um, are going to be inserted under ultrasound guidance um, and you want a high frequency linear probe um, to insert the line with. Um, where you position the ultrasound machine, if you're doing a femoral line, I would tend to have the ultrasound at the opposite side of the patient, so it's a right femoral line, have the ultrasound at the patient's left hand side. Um, if you're doing an internal jugular line, we would have the ultrasound facing you on the same side as the line you're going to insert. And the reason for that is you want the you want to be looking at the ultrasound as you're putting the line in, so you want it without having to turn your head. Um, as we've mentioned already, you're going to tend to use an out of plane technique rather than an in-plane technique that uh, is often used in adult patients. And the reason for that is the vessels are just so small, they're so close beside each other, it makes it very difficult for an in-plane technique. Um, obviously in an older patient you can use whatever technique you want, um, but it's like with anything, you have to practice it. So I would practice the out-of-plane technique for children and I don't teach an in-plane technique at all to our trainees. It's important that you put a sterile probe cover um, onto the ultrasound probe. So it comes in the central line packs. Put a little bit of gel onto the, into the actual um, probe cover itself. And then if your assistant holds the probe, you can then push this over the top and then they can pull the very bottom all the way down until that's out of the sterile field. And then there's a couple of elastic bands just to secure that over the head of the probe. Um, the first thing to do is to check that you've got the ultrasound the right way round. Um, and to do that, what you want to do is just touch either the right or left side of the probe. Um, and as you touch that probe, um, you'll see some movement on the screen. So when you touch the right side of the probe, the movement should occur on the right side um, of the screen. And that tells you you've got the probe the right way round. Um, if you don't, there's two things you can do. You can either turn the probe round or press the reverse button on the ultrasound machine. But in general, it's turn the probe round because the ultrasound machine it should hopefully be set up the right way. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is the angle of approach to the vein. Um, the femoral vessels generally are side by side. So you can generally go straight down to the vein um, the internal jugular vein tends to be slightly lateral to the artery and tends to overlap the artery slightly. So if you were to go straight down towards an internal jugular vein, um, there's a chance that you could go through the back of it into the artery. So what I'd recommend is you start um, slightly medial um, over where the artery is and then head lateral towards the vein. So you're, you're not going straight through the vein, you're going at a slight diagonal through the vein. But importantly, um, your posterior puncture of the vein 
means that you won't hit the archery. Um, this is important. If you were doing this with a landmark technique, um, you would uh, aim for the triangle in the neck, heading towards the patient's nipple. So you're always heading lateral with the needle. And the reason for that was so that you're always heading away from the artery. And that's just as important with ultrasound. So start medial, head laterally, and plan your approach so that your posterior puncture of the vein won't hit the artery. So what you'll notice is that um, the ultrasound probes have a little mark indicating the center of the probe. And on the screen of the ultrasound, you'll also see a little mark which indicates the center of the probe. So what I'd recommend doing is line that little mark up on the screen to where you want to um, have your initial puncture site. Um, and then if you were to put your needle in um, with the mark on the probe, it'll be lined up on the screen with where you intend to start your puncture. Um, so where do you actually do it? Um, if you're doing a femoral line, it's generally just below the inguinal ligament is where you want to go. Um, with the internal jugular vein, um, you can puncture it anywhere along its course in the neck. Um, as you go slightly lower down, the vein tends to be bigger, so it's slightly easier to insert. Um, but if you look um, posteriorly on your screen, what you'll notice is pleural sliding. Um, and the further down the neck you go, although the vein's bigger, um, you're also closer to the pleura, so your risk of causing a pneumothorax is higher. So in general, you're better to go as far up the neck as you can because your risk of causing a pneumothorax is going to be lower. The other thing to factor in is the length of your central line. So ideally, you want to leave the tip um, at the SVC right atrial junction is the ideal portion. Um, so you can measure that at the start and estimate that using a tape measure, which again will help influence um, where you puncture the skin. Um, but I would avoid um, particularly low puncture sites if possible because your risk of pneumothorax is higher. And if you have to go further up the neck, use a slightly longer central line is probably the safer approach than using a shorter line right down just above the clavicle. Okay, so the next point is probably one of the most important points I'm going to make, and that is the ultrasound probe can only see what is directly under it. And while that may appear obvious in isolation, um, and why am I being so stupid as to mention such an obvious point, and um, when you see what people do trying to insert lines, um, this isn't that obvious. Um, where, so where is this relevant? Um, if your needle isn't under the ultrasound probe, so when if you start um, slightly behind the ultrasound probe, you're not going to pick up your needle on the screen until the tip of that needle comes under the ultrasound probe. So most people get that bit, and um, what we'd recommend starting is as close to the ultrasound probe as you can, so that when your needle punches the skin, it starts under the screen. Um, where people go wrong is they don't move the probe along as they advance the needle. And what can actually happen is if your needle comes out behind the probe, so out the far end of it, it will look like the tip of your needle is still on the screen, but it won't be the tip of the needle. It'll be the bit of the needle that is under the probe that you're seeing. And the tip of your needle will be unvisualized behind the probe. 
And that's the reason why it looks like on the screen, it looks like I'm heading right for the vessel or I've hit it. But actually the tip of your, if you were to move the probe further away from you, you would then discover that the tip of your needle is actually somewhere else from where you think it is. So what do you do? As you're inserting your needle, um, what you want to do is insert it as close to the probe as possible. And like I've said, we've, we've described how you, you decide your initial puncture site. You, you aim using the screen where I want to go in, line the um, marker on the ultrasound probe up with that. So you're going to puncture at that marker, the middle of the probe, and you're going to puncture as close to that probe as you can. But what's important is as you go down really, really slowly with your needle, and as you advance the needle, it's also important that you move the ultrasound probe slightly further away from you so that you're keeping the tip of the needle in focus on the screen at all times. And if you're not sure that it's the tip of the needle you're seeing and maybe it's something behind the tip that you've now got on the screen, what you can do is just move the ultrasound probe away from you until you lose the needle. And then what you do, move it back and the very first side of the needle that comes up it's going to be the tip. And it's really important that as you go down towards the vein, you move the probe away from you and make any adjustments that you need. Um, too few movements of the probe um, is associated with missing because what looks like a good trajectory um, as you start to advance the needle, you may have to change things as you go down and as you move that probe slightly away from you because the vessel doesn't take a straight approach all the time. It moves from side to side. So you're going to have to adjust your angle as you go. So start close to the probe, move the needle in a bit, move the probe away as you're advancing the needle and make any adjustments to the trajectory as you go. So what you want to do is you're not trying to actually stop with the needle in the middle of the vein. What I would recommend doing is actually transfixing the vein. So you're going to puncture the anterior wall and then come out through the posterior wall of the vein. Um, important with this technique is that there's no posterior structures that mean you can't do this safely. So check that there's no artery behind the bit of the vein that you want to puncture. Um, there is other small arteries in the neck other than the carotid, so be careful none of those are directly behind the vein, and be careful that you're not too close to the pleura where this is going to cause problems. It's also important um, that you try and avoid a backwards-forwards approach so that you, you go down aiming towards the vein, not quite sure if you've hit it, pull back and try again and try again. Um, the reason for that is if you have inadvertently punctured the vein and then pull out through it, what happens is you cause a big hematoma. The, the next time you look at the screen, the good vein that you had will be half the size it was before. So if you're not really sure that you've punctured the vein, you're better to check whether you have or not, um, rather than just pulling out of it. Um, because your chances of success are much better on your first puncture. Uh, and also, if you have to puncture the vein many times, the risk of complications with that line goes up, um, particularly regarding thrombosis and venous congestion, particularly in the femoral vessels. If you get it first time, there's less likely of complications with that line. So if you're not sure if you've hit it, you're better to check 
um, rather than just pulling the line out and having it another pass with the needle. Okay, so once you've um, punctured the vein, both uh, anteriorly and posteriorly, um, what you want to do is take the needle out of the cannula and reattach the syringe. Um, what you then want to do is really, really slowly withdraw the cannula millimetre by millimetre until free-flowing blood comes into the syringe. So with the syringe, you need to have constant negative pressure on the plunger so that when that tip of the cannula um, goes back into the vein for the first moment, your syringe is going to fill with blood. And at that moment, then you want to advance the cannula back into the vessel. Um, the way I help do the way I do this is I have my thumb of my left hand um, on the cannula, ready to push it back in, and it's almost resisting withdrawal, so that the very first moment um, I get free flowing blood, I'm ready just to push the cannula back into the patient, um, using that left thumb. Um, once your cannula is in, what you want to do is um, check that it aspirates blood again by aspirating again on the syringe. Um, an alternative approach to this is um, what you can do is once you get that free-flowing blood coming into the cannula, rather than trying to push it into the patient, you can just hold the cannula there and then try and feed the wire down the cannula. Um, I wouldn't recommend that as the first line of te technique and I would think it's much better to try and push the cannula into the patient and the reason for that is feeding the wire is much easier. Um, if you have your cannula all the way into the patient, you have a much better angle to feed that wire. The, the lumen of the cannula is pointing down the vessel. The wire almost always feeds straight down without any problems. If you're trying to hold the cannula in the vessel, um, your angle is often pointed towards the posterior wall of the vein. So feeding the needle or feeding the wire down um, may be slightly more difficult. And also while you're trying to hold that cannula still, um, there's a risk of you actually um, pulling it out of the vessel. Um, when you're using the withdrawal technique and then advancing straight away, the very first moment you get free-flowing blood, your cannula is as much in the vessel as it's ever going to be. It's just come through the posterior wall. And at that point, it's really easy just to advance the cannula in. Whereas if you try to hold it there, um, there's a risk of you pulling it out um, the anterior wall or pushing it up against the posterior wall I mean it's difficult for you to feed the wire. Um, what I would recommend doing is try and push the cannula in for the first time and then if you put the syringe on and you aspirate free-flowing blood great your cannula is pushed in nicely. What can very occasionally happen maybe one time out of ten when you push the cannula in you don't have free-flowing blood and what that indicates is that the cannula has become up against the posterior wall of the vein. It's maybe kinked slightly. Um, all you need to do to rectify that situation is keep aspirating on the cannula while you very, very slowly withdraw it. What will happen again is you'll get to a point where the free-flowing blood comes once you've withdrawn the cannula a certain amount. And all you want to do at that stage is hold the cannula in that position and then try and feed your wire. But like I've said, nine times out of ten, if you've done this right, the cannula just pushes into the vein and feeding the wire is easy. And that one time out of ten where you 
it doesn't push in so easily. No problem. Just go back, pull it out slightly to where it aspirates again, and then try and feed the wire down. Okay, so there's a couple of key points for using this transfection technique um, with a high success rate. Um, and the first is where you actually puncture the vein is important and your accuracy in tracking the needle so that you puncture the vein at its centre is really important. Um, if you punch the vein at its centre so that you travel all the way through the middle of the vein to the posterior wall, you're going to have a long travel time of your needle in that vessel. So once you pull it back through the posterior wall, it's going to remain in the vein for a long time before it comes out the anterior wall, giving you a good margin for error for pushing that cannula in. If you've only punctured the vein at the edge, so you're well off its centre, the distance of travel in the vein is much lower. So it's really, really easy to pull through the um, posterior wall and straight out the anterior wall before you've realised. So by the time you've got your flashback, you've actually exited the vein and that's why your cannula won't push in and by the time you come out that anterior wall there's nothing you can do to rescue that situation so that's why it's important that you take your time going down to the vessel you plan your approach you make any adjustments that you need so that you puncture the vein in its maximum area of diameter so that you've left yourself as much travel time through that vessel so that when you pull through the um, posterior wall, you've got lots of room before you'll come through the anterior wall. So you can push the cannula in or hold the cannula and you've got more room um, for margin for error. So another factor that's important with the transfection technique is how steep an angle you take um, towards the vessel. Um, and why is this important? Well, if you take a really, really steep angle, um, you will come through the vein both sides with actually most of your cannula outside the patient's skin. So whenever you try to um, push the cannula into the patient, um, because maybe half the cannula is out of the patient, there's a higher risk of it kinking. The other thing, by taking such a steep angle as well, the chances of you hitting the posterior wall and kinking the cannula increases as well. Whereas if you've taken a slightly shallower approach, you'll puncture both sides of the vein where most of the cannula is in the patient. So that when you withdraw the needle to get your flashback, um, most of the cannula is actually still in the patient. So there's only a short bit out of the skin, so it's less likely to kink when you advance it. The other advantage to this is, because of the angle, it's more likely for the cannula to advance down the lumen of the vein rather than getting caught on the posterior wall. So again, this probably comes more with experience and um, being able to decide the steepness of the angle that you want to um, go at towards the vein. Um, there is depth markers on the side of the ultrasound that will help you, um, but ideally you want to finish your puncture with the cannula all the way in the patient and have really just punctured the posterior wall so that when you pull back your cannula is really only out um, half a centimeter at most 
um, by the time you puncture the pump, or sorry, come back through the posterior wall into the lumen, so that you have a lovely angle um, to push it in and it's not going to kink. Okay, so this is the technique I would recommend for using for central line insertion in small patients. Um, it is different from what the standard technique for inserting central lines in adults. Um, they would generally use a needle, um, position it in the centre of the vein using ultrasound guidance, and then hold the needle still and feed the wire down it. Um, I'm going to come on and explain the reasons why this technique um, works in children and why that technique with a needle isn't the best technique for using in children. Um, what you can do is you can just take my word for it. If you learn this technique, your lines will fly in. And after I've had a registrar do two or three lines using this technique, they can put them in with a really high success rate. If you want to use your standard adult needle technique, sometimes your lines will go in, sometimes they won't. Quite often they'll take you many goes before you get them in in those smaller patients. Um, the reason the transfection technique and the cannula works is what I'm going to come on to and explain now. Um, so I do have a few images on the screen, so if you're listening to this just as the podcast, um, you might want to have a look at the um, video version, which is going to be over on the Paediatric Emergencies website, paediatricemergencies.com. And this is where you'll also find the videos of the technique for doing this. So you can see on the screen we've got um, a neckline insertion um, on ultrasound here. So you've got the vein and artery highlighted on the screen. Um, this is a neonate. And as you can see, the lumen, the diameter of the uh, internal jugular vein is only three millimetres in diameter. Um, and if you were to scan the same baby, you'd probably find their femoral vein is only one to two millimetres, probably closer to one in diameter. And it's the small size of these vessels that makes it really, really difficult to position the centre of a needle or cannula into the middle of the lumen and hold it there. Um, and the reason this is difficult is as you um, head towards the anterior wall of the vein, you don't puncture it straight away. What tends to happen is it gets tented over towards the posterior wall, further reducing the size of the lumen. And, and then what happens as you puncture the anterior wall, you're less than a millimetre away from the posterior wall. And by the time any blood um, has made its way up that needle into the syringe, you've already punctured the posterior wall. Um, also, if you say you're going to try and hold your needle still in that position where you've just punctured the anterior wall, um, the difficulty with that is because you're only less than a millimetre away from the posterior wall, it's really easy for you just to push that needle on into the posterior wall while you're trying to hold it still to feed your wire. So you'll have blood coming into the syringe, but your wire won't feed because your needle is now kinked up against the posterior wall of the vein. So it ma this makes no sense to me to try and position your needle in the middle of a vein in such a small patient. Um, it's much easier just to go straight through the back of the vein. The vein will then return up to its maximum diameter. The, the vessel's not compressed. And then when you pull your cannula back into the vein, your, the very first moment that you get free-flowing blood, 
is with a cannula as far into the vein as it's ever going to be. And because whenever you try and position your needle uh, in, just puncture the anterior wall and don't puncture the posterior wall, the failure rate with that is so high, I just don't see the point of trying to do it. And as I've mentioned, um, that failure rate does have consequences. So the more punctures it takes you to cannulate the vessel, the more hematoma that forms outside the vessel, um, the narrower the vessel is. So your risk of thrombosis and venous congestion, because the lumen's so narrow whenever you eventually block the remainder of it, the central line. So it's important that you give yourself the best chance of turning your first puncture of the vessel into a successful cannulation. And that's why I would strongly advocate you use a transfection technique. And that's the only technique I teach for use in small babies. Um, and I want to come on and say why I would recommend using a cannula and not a needle in these small patients. And the reason for that is to do with the bevel. If you look at the bevel on the needle, it's about one millimeter in length. Um, and as we've said, that's similar to the diameter of the femoral vein in a neonate. Um, and this does cause you problems when you're trying to position the bevel of that needle in the vessel, which is about the same size as the bevel's length itself. So importantly, when you just puncture the anterior wall, so part of the bevel is outside the lumen and part of the bevel has punctured the anterior wall of the vessel, you will be able to aspirate blood from that needle. But if you try to pass the wire down the needle, it won't go because you've only got a part of the lumen of the bevel in the vessel. Say so you go the other way, you've, you've gone through the vessel and part of the bevel of the needle is now part of the way through the posterior wall. Um, in that position, you will also be able to freely aspirate blood up the needle, but when you try to pass the wire down that needle, it won't go. It'll get stuck in the posterior wall because only part of the lumen is open and into the vessel. And actually, the only time you're able to pass a wire down that needle is when you have the whole of the bevel positioned in the lumen of the vein. Um, and as we've said, for no problem in a big vein, um, but if you take a small femoral vein in a two kilo neonate, which is gonna be a millimeter or less in diameter, the same size as the bevel, it becomes quite a difficult technique that's gonna have quite a high failure rate. And this is why people who use the needle in these small patients are confused. Um, it looks like the needle is in the vessel lumen, it's pouring blood, but the wire just won't go. Um, and this is why I recommend using a cannula. It just avoids all these problems. Um, the very first moment that you pull your cannula back into the vein, because the end of the cannula is flat, your cannula is as far into that vessel as it will be, um, meaning you have the best chance of advancing your, either pushing your cannula on into the vessel or advancing a wire down that cannula and it feeding. The other big advantage of the cannula not having a bevel 
is that once you've got it into the lumen of the vein, it's more likely to stay there. Um, you've got much more margin for error due to its flat end. The difficulty of trying to hold a needle in the middle of the lumen while you feed a wire down it, because obviously you can't just push the needle on down the lumen, you have to hold that bevel positioned in the middle of the lumen and then pass the wire down it. And while you're doing that, any fine movement at all can very quickly either pull the bevel out the anterior wall or push the tip of the needle in through the posterior wall. So you've you really got very little margin for error. You have to hold that. Once you find the position in the middle of the lumen, it's really, really difficult to keep it in that position while you feed the wire. Okay, so that's the reason for me. In all my small patients, I use a cannula and always transfix the vein. It's by far the easiest way to make my first puncture of the vessel translate into a successful central line in that vessel. It also makes central line insertion really, really quick. And as we're inserting these lines in critically ill children, being able to put one in first go and really fast is an important skill to have. So when would I not use this technique? Um, in general, older patients, and the reason for that is it's just not necessary. Um, the reason in the smaller patients you're doing it is due to the size of the vessels um, and giving your chance, yourself the best chance to get a first puncture success. Um, obviously, if your patient's bigger, it just makes it unnecessary to puncture the vessel because you can see it on the ultrasound, puncturing through the anterior wall, and you've got miles of room to go before you go through the posterior wall. Um, the other problem is in the bigger children, they tend to have tougher skin. So that uh, trying to push the cannula without a needle in it doesn't tend to work quite as well. So like I say, for all small patients, I, this the transfection cannula technique is what I would strongly recommend. Um, and you have to practice this to get good at it. So I would recommend you use that for most small children. Um, if I'm using a, an older child, then I would generally just use a needle and position it in the middle of the vein. Um, if I do want to use a cannula, um, I would hold the cannula in the vein in the middle of the lumen and just push the cannula off the needle rather than actually pushing it all the way through because that sort of tougher skin can make it quite difficult um, to push the cannula in without the needle. Um, the other situation where I would try and avoid um, the transfection technique is if there's something posterior um, that makes it unsafe to use. And you can see on the screen here, we've got an internal jugular vein, um, which directly behind it, you've got the uh, carotid artery and then a smaller artery to the left. So there's no way you could safely puncture this vein on both sides without going into one of the arteries. So you're going to have to take your time and stop short in the vessel. Uh, and this is actually one of the videos um, that I have on the site of showing the technique for this. So what I did is I just positioned the cannula in the lumen and then once I was happy it was in the lumen by aspirating blood, pushed the cannula off the needle rather than the posterior puncture, which I've described. Okay, so once you've got your vessel cannulated, the next thing you need to do is feed the wire down the cannula. Um, and a lot of the central lines come with two different wires. There's a straight wire, um, which does have a flexible tip, and there's also a J-shaped wire. 
Um, so it's particularly important um, with the upper circulation lines that you use the J-shaped wire. And the reason for that is that um, if the line goes into the heart, the it's really, really easy for the line, if it had a sharp tip, to puncture straight through the wall of the heart and cause a cardiac tamponade. Um, having that J-shaped wire, it tends to just push off the wall rather than going through it. So if your line's at risk of going into, if your wire's at risk of going into the heart, you really should be using the J-shaped wire. So the J-shaped wire um, comes in a little plastic holder. And do you want to position your wire so you have it ready to use um, before you start the line? So what you want to do is to pull the bend of the wire so it's straightened inside the little bit of plastic so that then when you push the little bit of plastic into the cannula, you can then advance the wire and the wire stays straight in the plastic and all the way down to the cannula so it's only when it comes out of the cannula that the J comes out of it and then as you advance it the, the J of the wire will give you that safety should you inadvertently go into the heart. It is important to say that you shouldn't be trying to advance your wire all the way into the heart. You should be um, being cautious about how far you advance the wire and trying to stop short of the heart. Um, it is important that you have ECG monitoring on while you're inserting the line so that you get a topics on the screen showing that your wire has actually made it all the way to the heart and you can quickly withdraw it. Um, there is a risk of causing arrhythmias um, during the central line insertion uh, and if your patient's particularly at high risk of this you might want to think about a femoral line rather than a neckline um, because obviously due to the distance of the femoral puncture site from the heart your wire shouldn't be going anywhere near the heart at all. It's always a risk with an internal jugular line because you may be only five or six centimetres to reach the heart in an amniote. Um, so obviously be careful how far you put the wire in. Try and get it in far enough that it doesn't fall out, but not so far that you're in tickling the heart and causing arrhythmias. The, the other thing I want to mention, uh, if you've got a particularly small patient or, for example, you've tried to advance the cannula all the way into the vessel and it hasn't gone, and you've now got the cannula held, not pushed it, fully pushed in, but it's now aspirating blood and you're going to try and pass the wire. In that situation, you're probably better to use the straight wire initially. Trying to pass a J wire down a cannula that is only part of the way in the vessel, not fully advanced, is going to have a much higher failure rate than a straight wire. So what I would recommend you do is take the straight wire and pass it a few centimetres so it's, it's come out of the cannula by one or two centimetres only. Then what you can do is fully advance the cannula into the vessel. You can then take that straight wire out, assuming it's a neckline. If it's a femoral line, just leave, advance it on in. Um, if it is a neckline, take the straight wire out, check the cannula still aspirates, and then you can feed your J-wire. Now your cannula is all the way in the vessel, um, you'll have no problem feeding the J-wire down it. The other situation is if you're putting a central line in a particularly small patient, less than a kilo, that because that bend of the J is probably going to be bigger than the patient's vessel, you might have difficulty advancing it. So in that situation, you might want to use the straight wire, but obviously being very careful with it. Um, the other thing I want to mention about central lines is there I have seen this done where 
people will try and feed the jwar in the opposite way round. Um, so what they will do is they will feed the straight end of the jwar into the lumen of the vessel and then try and pass the dilator over the top of that. Um, I do want to caution against that. Um, even the, the straight wires that come in the kits have a soft, flexible tip. Whereas if you take a standard J wire and feed it in the reverse way round, um, the end of that wire is not soft and not flexible and is highly likely to either puncture through the vessel or if you were to feed it into the heart, it has a high risk of puncturing through. So it's not a technique that I can recommend. Central line wires come as spurs individually wrapped. So if you do have a difficulty where you've, you're difficulty feeding the wire, you can get a straight wire that is specifically designed to be fed in in a separate pack. So don't feed a J wire in the reverse way round. So it is important to mention that the wire should pass without any resistance. Um, if there is resistance to passing the wire, it, alarm bells should be going off saying that there's something wrong. So that resistance could mean that you're not actually in the lumen of the vessel and that your wire has passed subcutaneously. Um, it could also mean that there's some sort of blockage in the vessel. Um, for example, the patient had previous lines and that vessel has thrombosed further up. Um, or it could also mean that your wire has made its way out of the main route um, up towards the central circulation to go into a more smaller peripheral vein. Um, but either way, you shouldn't ignore that sign. It means there's something wrong. Um, and if you were to feed your line along that, the risk of the mine um, malplacement or kinking or further complications are going to be higher. Okay, so once you're past your wire, the next thing you want to do is scan the wire to check that it's gone into the vein and not the artery. If you have punctured the artery, um, at this stage you haven't done any harm. You're probably safe enough to be able to take the wire out, apply some pressure, and you'll get away with it. What you won't get away with is dilating an artery. And the way to avoid dilating the artery is to scan the wire to make sure that it's in the vein and not the artery before you dilate. So how do you do this? Um, you just bring your ultrasound probe back up again. Um, what you tend to do is you put it just um, over the point, just distal to the point where the wire um, goes into the skin so that your probe is all over skin and not over wire outside the skin. And then what you want to do is angle the top of the probe backwards so that you're scanning further into the patient. And as you do this, you'll see the wire move from being up at the skin down towards the vein. And it's important that you can, once you've seen the wire in the vein, you continue to scan down, making sure that you haven't punctured the vein and then gone into the artery below it, because that can happen. So you want to follow all the, see the wire all the way up from the skin to down below the vein making sure you haven't done an inadvertent venous to arterial puncture. And only once you're happy that the wire is only in the vein that you should be dilating it. If you're any way in doubt, you can't make out that you can't see your wire, you're not sure if it's in the vein or the artery, what I would recommend doing is taking a small 
single lumen line, for example, all my punctures are done with a 22 gauge cannula. The later flex line uh, is a 22 gauge 6 centimeter or 8 centimeter line that can be passed over the wire without any dilatation. So what you can do is you can pass this over the wire, take the wire out and then transduce the line and you'll be able to tell whether it's venous or arterial, obviously making sure you maintain the sterile precautions while the line is being transduced. Once you've worked out its venous, you can then disconnect the transducer, refeed the wire and remove the leader flex over the top of the wire and go on with your triple lumen line insertion. Okay, so once you're happy that the wire is in the vein, the next step is dilatation. So generally before we advance the dilator, we would make a small nick with a scalpel just where the wire enters the skin. So the best way to do this is that you have the blade of the scalpel pointing up the way and it's a small stab incision just where the wire enters the skin. To be able to see this, there's often a little bit of blood oozing from around the wire. You need to have a bit of gauze, press over the puncture site for a few seconds and then as you lift the gauze off you'll see exactly where the wire enters the skin and it's just a small stab incision and that means that your dilator is more likely to pass and not kink the wire. Um, there is certain groups of patients that I won't make a skin nick in um, and they are patients who are coagulopathic or thrombocytopenic so there's high risk of them bleeding from round the line and by not making a skin nick you get a tighter seal of the hole that you've made with the line um, but in doing so there's a slightly higher chance of me kinking the wire when I'm trying to dilate the hole so it's, it's always a risk benefit most patients make a skin nick um, if you've got a patient who's coagulopathic or thrombocytopenic consider not making a skin nick um, but be aware that your risk of kinking the wire is slightly higher and decide what to do on a risk benefit ratio Okay, so the next thing you need to do is pass your dilator over the wire to increase the diameter of the hole that you've made. Um, it is important to remember that you can still lose your line at this point. Everything's been going well, but you can still lose it if you kink the wire. So you need to be careful about doing your dilation, making sure you don't kink the wire as you do so. So how do you do this? The first and most important thing is that the pressure you exert during the dilatation must be directed along the angle of the wire. So you need to look and see what angle the wire is going in, remember what angle you punctured the vessel at and dilate along that angle. If you go too shallow or too steep, well, that force is going to be directed against the wire and the wire is going to kink. So that is the most important thing. The next thing what you want to do is make sure the skin is taut. So what I tend to do is use the my left hand to stretch the skin and the right hand to advance the dilator, making sure I'm dilating along the normal direction of the wire. Um, and it's mostly just slow, gentle pressure with a slight twisting motion as you go. And then as you enter the lumen of the vein you'll get a sudden give as the dilator goes in. Um, it's important you don't continue to insert the dilator because you can um, damage the posterior wall 
of the vessel. So once you've got that give, you can stop. You can check that you've actually dilated enough um, by uh, and that you are in now in the lumen of the vessel by just moving the wire. And if the wire moves freely through the dilator, it means that your tip of the dilator is in the vessel. Um, I do want to cover what you should do if you do kink the wire. And again, you're more likely to do this when you're starting out. Um, if you do, the first thing is to make sure you have enough of the wire in the patient so that if you do kink it, you can pull that kink out of the patient without pulling all the wire out. So you want to have your wire well in when you start, but not so far in that it's in the heart. That means that if you do kink the wire, you can just pull that kink out of the patient um, and then you can rescue it. If you haven't put enough of the wire in, then when you pull the kink out, you risk pulling the wire out of the lumen. So like I say, the first thing you do when you kink it to stop dilating, um, you're only going to make it worse and you're never going to get into the vessel once you've started to kink. So pull that bit of kink wire out of the patient so you can see where the kink is. What I would then recommend you do is you get one of those uh, 22 gauge 6 or 8 centimetre leader flex lines which are lovely and soft and flexible and try and then just feed that over the wire. It should pass over the kink which is then out of the patient and then advance that all the way in. You should then be able to pull that wire out and then get a new wire, feed that down the later flex line and remove the later flex line and then you can start your dilation again. Um, an alternative approach is to try and pass that cannula over the kinked wire and then obviously take the wire out and put a new wire in. The reason I wouldn't recommend the cannula is it's shorter and stiffer than the later flex line. Um, and obviously because the kink is now outside, um, you mightn't get enough of the cannula in to go all the way to the lumen. Um, because you're taking the wire out again, if your cannula comes out, you've lost the line. And again, because the cannula is stiffer, it's going to be harder to feed over the kinked wire. Whereas the lovely soft flexible later flex line is the perfect thing to rescue this situation. So that's what I recommend doing. So once you're happy that you've done the dilatation, you can remove the dilator. Um, and as you remove the dilator, what you should be looking for is a gush of dark red venous blood from where you've done the dilatation. That's a sign that you've done a good enough job with the dilator. Um, and it's important you have a wee bit of gauze ready to um, put pressure over the puncture site because it's going to take you a wee bit of time to get the dilator off the, off the wire and the line over the wire. And if you leave this without pressure, the patient uh, is at risk of losing quite a bit of blood. So with your left hand, what you need to do is apply a bit of gauze over the puncture site and apply pressure. You then can use your right hand to take the dilator off the wire. It is important that your left hand is still holding on to the wire so the wire doesn't come in or out of the patient while you're doing um, taking the dilator off the wire with your right hand and then feeding the central line over the tip of the wire. Um, obviously, to make this easier, you can put a little bit of bend in the wire that's outside the patient so that you've got, you're holding the wire between your finger and thumb of your left hand near the end of the wire, which does help when you're trying to feed the central line over it. It is also important 
that before you push the central line into the patient, the wire should have come out the distal lumen at the far end of the central line and be in your left hand. And in doing so, you'll avoid advancing the line into the patient and losing the wire. Again, this is something really important and there has been instances in the past where people have advanced lines and lost the wire in the patient. So the way to avoid this is always have the wire in one of your hands. So it should always be in your left hand, assuming you're right hand dominant. So your left hand holds the wire um, up near the patient end while you feed the line over the wire. Once the line, oh sorry, once the wire comes out the end of the central line, your left hand then moves from the um, far end of the wire to the end that's closest to you coming out the central line and holds it there. And only once that wire is in that hand that you then push the line into the patient. Okay, so the next thing, once the line is all the way into the patient, is to remove the wire. And it's important that when you remove the wire, you apply your thumb over the end of the line. And this is to prevent air being sucked in and causing an air embolus. It's then important that you check all three lumens of the line, aspirate, dark red, non-pulsatile, venous blood. And I would recommend taking a blood gas um, from the line to check the SATs um, to confirm that the line is venous. Um, it's important, like I said, that all three of the lumens aspirate blood. Um, what can happen is because the, the distal lumen, when you look at the central line, its hole is right at the end of the line. The other two lumens, the medial and the proximal port, have their holes part the way up the line. And if that hole is positioned directly against the vessel wall, when you try to aspirate blood from those, there can be some resistance. The easy way to check that that's the cause is just to rotate the line in the patient and aspirate again. And if it now aspirates freely from the distal and medial port, there's no need to worry about it. Um, if your distal lumen doesn't aspirate blood freely, that is a worrying sign. And again, alarm bells should be going off that there's something wrong with this line. It's not positioned where you want it. It could be up against a vessel wall, it could have migrated into a smaller lumen, or it could be kinked. But either way, it's not something that you can ignore, and you can't leave the line in that position. Likewise, I've mentioned that the um, medial and proximal ports of the line can be difficult to aspirate initially, but they should never be difficult to flush. Um, and if your line, all three limits of the line should be easy to flush, there shouldn't be any resistance. If there is any resistance, again, alarm bells should be going off that this line is either malplaced or kinked, but you should never ignore that sign. Okay, so the next thing you want to do is secure your central line. Um, what I would say here, it's important that your stitch is slightly in front of the line. Um, as we have mentioned, we generally intend to insert central lines all the way into the hilt in children. We don't want to leave any of the line out. So if your stitch is slightly in front of the line, it tends to pull the line in, so it's less likely to come out. Because if the line moves in and out, there is obviously risk of the tip, if it's up against a wall, migrating through the wall, and moving in and out increases the risk of infection around the line. 
So important to have your stitch slightly in front of it so it pulls the line in to the patient. The next thing, once your line is stitched in, I would soak a little bit of gauze with some of the clean sealing that you have and give the area a really good clean. Um, remember to check underneath the line um, because any blood is going to act as a culture medium and increase your risk of infection. So once you've got everything nice and clean, give it a good dry with some gauze. The next thing that you want to do is to insert a bio patch over the top of the line and cover the line with a sterile dressing. So once you've done the line, um, you need to confirm its position. So the first thing you need to do is confirm that it's in a vein and not an artery. And for most of my patients, I do this um, by checking the venous saturations on a blood gas taken from the central line and compare those to the patient's either peripheral oxygen saturations or arterial oxygen saturations from a gas taken from the arterial line. Um, if there's any doubt about this or if the patient is cyanotic, um, I would transduce the line exactly the same as you would with an arterial line and check the central venous pressure. So once you're happy the line's in a vein and not the artery, you want to check what position it is in the vein and to check you hasn't caused any complications during the line insertion. And for the necklines, that's generally done with a chest x-ray. So you want to check that the line is in a good position and generally we're looking for that to be in the SVC um, and probably at the right atrial SVC junction is the ideal position although it doesn't necessarily have to be that far in. And although we don't generally want the line um, all the way into the heart, we will occasionally tolerate a line that is in the right atrium. It is important to check that the line is in malpositioned and has taken the, the path that you want it to take. Um, as I've mentioned, this is more common for left-sided lines, and in particular, you don't want to leave the line um, coming straight across from the anominant vein pointing towards the wall of the SVC rather than turning down into the SVC and um, because the lines they tend to move in and out a little bit and there's a risk of a line um, left in that position punching through the right lateral wall of the SVC. So if it is in that position the easiest thing to do is to pull it back slightly into the anominate vein rather than leaving it there. Um, although if you've followed uh, the advice I've given you going through this, you'll already know your line is there because as you try to aspirate through the distal lumen, um, it'll be slowly aspirate um, because the tip is going to be up against the wall. There still isn't a consensus about whether femoral lines should be routinely x-rayed. Um, my current practice is I don't routinely x-ray all my femoral lines. Um, because we're not trying to feed these right the way up. Um, they're just left in the iliac vessels and the only reason I would think about x-raying them to make sure the tip's not kinked or malplaced is if there's any resistance to aspiration, passage of the wire or difficulty flushing them. Um, and in those situations I would think about an x-ray and possibly some contrast to confirm the line is in a good position before using it. Um, if you are feeding pick lines up the leg, it's important I, these do need an x-ray because they can feed up into the lumbar vessels. Um, so you would need to x-ray um, the abdomen to make sure it passes up the right side of the abdomen and not up the left side of the midline, which would be a, 
a feature that it's uh, made its way into the lumber vessels. The final thing you want to do is to protect your line and protect your patient. So for your sick intensive care patient, the lines are all going to be in regular use. You're actually going to be short of access. But if they're not all in regular use, it's important you write up a flush at least twice a day to maintain patency of the line. Um, it's important you leave good instructions so your, your biopath should be changed after a week. And it's important you leave instructions about removing the line as soon as it's no longer needed. And the longer you leave a line in, the risk of complications increases, so the risk of infection and the risk of thrombosis. And in general, we don't leave lines in longer than 10 to 14 days because the risk of infection increases that much. So again, get the lines out as soon as you can. And if you still need the access, think about changing them after 10 to 14 days. Okay, so that was a run through of the basic technique for inserting a central line in a small child. Um, I do have a couple of videos um, of me inserting lines in children, um, which I'm going to leave up on the blog post for this on paediatricemergencies.com. So have a look at these. Um, if you're listening to the audio-only version of this, the, there is a video version of this with some of the diagrams that I've mentioned as I was going along. If you have any questions or queries, please leave them on the comment section of the website, paediatricemergencies.com. Thanks for listening.